The views and opinions expressed in the following episodes are those of the individuals and are not meant to insult or offend anyone. Jeez, dark and gloomy much? Are you trying to be an edgelord? Well, then how should I put it then? I don't know. How about... We come in peace. We mean no harm. We may spoil some things. We may swear a lot. (laughs) (laughs) So listener discretion is advised. guys just a huge fumble on our part or my part mostly forgot to do the disclaimer about this because this there should be a huge trigger warning because we are covering richard ramirez i'm feeling sick just saying his name um so yeah we're going to talk about the gruesome murder so this is a trigger warning for murder assault rape um all kinds of horrible things this is abuse against children. Yeah. So again, huge trigger warning. Murder of for, a child. Yes. Uh, yeah. Trigger warning. Now, if you don't want to listen to this episode, we, we understand because this is some gruesome stuff. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Um, that's it. I was waiting for you to do the outro and that's not where we are. That's not no. the things that happen at this point. So no, we forgot to throw this in at the beginning. We hope you guys find this interesting. We're both T for brains right now. Yeah. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Little Nerdy. I'm your host, Michelle. And I'm her slowly going insane co-host, Owen. <laughs> and we are back with our second part of Richard Ramirez. It's fine. It's fine. I'm fine. It's just I'm just <laughs> the anger and rage towards the whole like what this scumbag did is just you enjoy this kind of stuff. I don't. Well, that. I find interesting. Interesting. Okay, yeah. Sorry, I just get all... I just see red. I'm like, okay, must get him. Mm-hmm. But anyways... Don't um, worry. If it makes you feel better, he gets us. So. I know, but that's still... It's just despicable. And I it's know. disgusting. It is despicable what he did. Okay, let's talk about something a little positive and say... I want to send a big thank you to our friend Black White Jack for doing intro and outro music. Yes, their information will be in the show notes along with all of our sources. We'll do those again. All right, let's get into it. So where are we left off? Uh, we were talking about the guy that got shot in the head and survived. <laughs> Chris Peterson. Chris Peterson, thank you. And his wife, uh, Virginia. They were both shot in the head mm-hmm. by 25 caliber uh, bullets. Um, they both survived, and Chris even chased Ramirez out of the house. Yep. So. Okay. So the Los Angeles Herald Examiner coined the name the Night Stalker. For the crimes, and it stuck. Yeah, I mean, what was it? The other, do you remember what the other names were called? Um, the walk in. The walk, uh, hold on. The, I think it was like the walk in killer or the. The valley intruder and the walk in killer. Yeah, the walk in killer and the valley intruder. It's like, Walk in killer is like, yeah, it's something. Or the valley intruder, it's like, well, this guy was all over the place. So I don't really think he was like specifically in the valley mm-hmm. of California. So it's just weird because the Golden State Killer was also known at some point as the Night Stalker. But now when people talk about him, they say the original Night Stalker. So oh. it's just weird. But yeah. And his crimes were also in California, I believe. So anyway, um, July 8th, 1985. Okay. In Diamond Bar, he chose to break into the home of Elias Abelwaith, who was 31, and Sakina Abelwaith, who were 27, uh, where he shot Elias in the head with a 25 caliber bullet, killing him instantly. He then beat, handcuffed, and raped Sakina while forcing her to divulge uh, where the valuables were. When their three-year-old son came into the room, Richard tied him up and continued to attack uh, Sakina, uh, telling her, don't look at me and swear to Satan. Yeah. So <clears throat> this is this goes to show that that earlier with uh, 
Mr. Peterson, I believe, mm-hmm. that getting shot in the head, it's like, that must have been like something of a miraculous shot to survive kind of thing. Same with Virginia. She was shot in the head as well. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm just saying it's like, I'm not sure how they got shot in the head, where the bullet went yeah. kind of thing. Because it's uh, Mr. Um, where did I just read it? Um, Abaweth? Yeah, Mr. Abaweth. It's like, unfortunately, he did not survive the headshot wound. Yeah. So it's like, it's... Yeah, again, it was kind of miraculous. And it was like, yeah, Mr. Peterson was a badass. Yeah. So, anyways. On August 18th, 1985 in San Francisco... Richard entered the home of Peter Pan, 66, and Barbara Pan, 62. He shot and killed Peter with the 25 caliber shot to the temple before attacking Barbara and sexually assaulting her. He then shot her in the head. He used lipstick, lipstick to draw a satanic pentagram on the wall, as well as write Jack the Knife on the wall. Hmm. So Gil and Frank found out that there were shoe prints left at the scene that were the Avia ones. And also that the ballistic evidence um, matched from the Peterson and the Abawath yeah. crime scenes. So they went down there, right, and took a look and filled them in and all that. Right. So one of the things they had done by this time was they had actually contacted Avia, the company that created the shoe, right? Yes. And they figured out <clears throat> which shoe it was in their, like, line, Right. Because they had different lines, sneakers, whatever. Blah, yeah, blah, blah. <clears throat> like and, the main product product line. And yeah, the ex- exotic elite or uh, what do you want to call it? Yeah, and stuff. And Avia had traced the locations to where these shoes went up. Yeah. So there were six pairs in existence of the size eleven of the sneaker line. So when you're talking about a, uh, cities of that size and everything, saying that there's only six of these shoes. That's a pretty, you know, good way to narrow down your suspects list. Just wait, it gets narrower. Mm -hmm. Out of the six, five went to Arizona and one to Los Angeles. So now it's you find these shoes on this guy, you know it's him. You just got to look at the shoes. Exactly. I tell you, it's all about the shiz. Mm -hmm. So shortly after the Pan murders, San Francisco Mayor Diane Feinstein gave a press conference. Yeah, this is where uh, things went squirrely and bad for the investigation. Yeah. Because she told the public that the police had tied the cases together with shoe prints and shell casings. So basically just revealing their whole hand because they knew that uh, the Night Stalker Ramirez was watching and observing, I think. The news, yeah. Yeah, so... Which, I mean, I think most serial killers are because they're such narcissists. Eh, sometimes, yeah. So, the police were using this evidence. Number one is hold back evidence. Yeah. Right. And the hold back evidence is where they don't release certain aspects of the um, investigation to the public. Because when they get the guy that they think did it, or if someone comes in to confess, if they can give away those details of the crimes that were not released to the public, it's more substantial. Yeah. Right. And stuff. So they were doing that. But again, they were holding it back because they thought that he was watching the news. And sure as shit he was because they never found those of the issues. Yeah. He disposed of them. I mean, when someone's like, hey, we match the killings to your shoe prints. It's like, oh, I better get rid of these. Yeah. So on August 24th, he drove approximately 75 miles from south of Los Angeles to Mission Ve- uh, Mission Vejo, I think is how you say it. Vejo? Mm-hmm. No, sorry. I'm just missing. Right where is it? Uh, yeah, I think Vejo. Um, in a stolen orange Toyota. Um, there he was prowling around the house of the Romeros when James the third, um, he was a 13 year old, he went outside to grab a pillow because they had just come back from vacation and he wanted the pillow in the vehicle. Yeah. But I guess it was like locked. So he went to the garage and he was like, oh, I guess I'll work on like my mini bike or whatever. 
and he heard footsteps. So he looked out the window and saw Richard. So he went to wake his parents up, which scared Richard off. But before he left, he was able to get the make, model, color, and a partial plate on that car. Damn, that kid's got some good eyes and smart right? thinking. Later that night, Richard broke into Bill Carnes, 30, and his fiance Inez Erickson, 29's house. Mm-hmm. He shot Bill three times in the head with the 25 caliber gun and then attacked Inez. He told her that he was the Night Stalker. He told her to swear she loved Satan as he raped and beat her. He demanded cash and again made her swear to Satan. She had given him all the valuables. So once he left, she was actually able to get for, like undo her ties or whatever. Yeah. And got to a neighbor's house to call for help. Bill survived having two of the bullets removed. Wow. Yeah. Okay. I mean, this comes down to the whole bullet caliber thing. And yeah. obviously it's like, you know, 22, 9 mil, 45, like all the pistol calibers under the sun and everything. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the bigger the bullet, the harder the hit and more likely it's going to kill somebody, especially with a headshot wound in some cases. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this uh, Bill, sorry, what was his last Bill name? Bill Carnes. Bill Carnes. You know, it's, it's either Ramirez is just the shittiest shot in the world or he, you know, there are some real badasses in Los Angeles that, can, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, the bullets like, oh, you shot me with a gun. Now I'm going to smack you across the head. Yeah. Uh, you know, so good, good to know that uh, they, they, he survived. Yeah, definitely. So once the police released the details of the orange Toyota, <laughs> a man called to let him know his friend's car matching that description had been stolen out of Chinatown. So the plate number given matched the partial given by James. Yeah. Right. So police found the vehicle on August 28th in a downtown parking lot and brought it in for evidence. The lab found a fingerprint, which was compared. They were like, okay, now we got to compare these to fingerprints on file. So this was going to take a while because it's 1985. It is not computerized. So they have to go through manually. Yeah. Each like a booking photo that would have the fingerprints attached. Right. Yeah. So. It, it takes a while. It's not as streamlined as it is nowadays. Yeah. Now I think they can just scan the print into a computer and like have it run it just against until it matches, right? Yeah. At least that's what CSI told me. Um, oh, I'm sure. Because like, I mean, that was also, you know, around early 2000s. Yeah. And, you know, the computer for the computers for that kind of stuff were getting really advanced. Yeah. So almost 20-ish years later, I'm sure it's a lot more common to have that kind of tools because it's more practical and effective yeah okay so while the lab or sorry while they were like going through those um gill and frank were following other leads right one of those leads led them to a um man by the name of armando rodriguez and a stolen brace and bracelet is what led them to him, right? Yeah. He was friends with Richard, and he actually gave the police his name. After a little bit of hesitation, he didn't really want to help out and stuff, but he eventually did. I think it's that old code of uh, snitches get stitches. But, I mean, you know, if you are if you got somebody like Richard Ramirez in your life, turning him in is probably the best for your safety as well. Yeah. Because who knows when he'll turn on you. So this narrowed the fingerprint search down, though, because now they have a name. Yeah. There were only eight people on file with that name. So the police brought in the 1984 booking photo of Richard and showed it to Armando, and he said that was him. So then the police released the name and photo to the media. By the next morning, August 31st, it was all over the TV and newspapers. Yeah, because I, I, I personally haven't been keeping count of how many victims he's had at this point, mm-hmm. uh, be it survived or unalived um, from Ramirez. But the fact that he had been going all over the place, and he even left uh, Los Angeles. Yeah, he went to, well, yeah. I don't know California really well, but I know, like, um, San Francisco, obviously, right? Mm-hmm. And... Um, I'm pretty sure, according to the documentary we watched, is that he went northbound for, like, 
you know, about a two hour ish drive. Well, that was San Francisco. Yeah. So I'm just saying it's like they hold like he. And then he went south, right? 75 miles, roughly. Yeah. Right. So he was, yeah. So it's kind of the whole getting the word out and getting his picture out. So when people see him, yeah. they know what to expect. And it's like, hey, call the cops. Yeah. So when Richard walked into the liquor store in downtown LA, mm-hmm. there were a couple ladies there that were calling him El Matador, which meant the killer in Spanish. Mm. Uh, when they saw his face. So then he saw his face all over the paper and fled. But that drew more attention to him because now he's like running, right? And people are re- rec- like recognizing him and realizing who he was, right? Yeah. So he ended up running across the Santa Ana Freeway, which is like the I-5, I guess. So it's like a big freeway. Yeah, a right? busy road. Yeah. And stuff into Boyle Heights, where he tried to hijack a car. However, the owner of the call, uh, car, sorry, um, Bastino Pinon, he, like, pulled him away from the car. Like, get the fuck away from my car, dude. Right? Yeah, it's one of those things where it's like if somebody's just randomly carjacking you, it's one thing. But it's like, I'm pretty sure with uh, the whole, oh, this is this piece of scum and everything like that. We, uh, you know, it's like, oh. I'm going to pull him out of my car and give him a few punches. And it's like, what's someone going to do? Say good, you know, like, hey, how dare you punch the serial killer? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So after Mr. Uh, Pinon pulled him off his car, he ran across the road and tried to take the keys from a lady named um, Angelina Della Torre. But her husband, Manuel, hit Ramirez over the head with a metal pole. Nice. Yes. Now, this is the whole, like, okay, so first he's already running for, like, onto the I-5 or whatever it is. So it's like, he's panicking. Yeah. And then he tries to hijack this one vehicle. The guy's fighting him off and everything and probably not holding back. He's like, the you know, you piece of shit, like, just take this and, uh, 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 mm-hmm. and everything. Um, the uh, whole, so then that throws some panic in and then he gets this other vehicle and then he gets hit by a uh, metal Pipe or pole? Pole. Pole. So he gets hit by a metal. Sounds like it was like a um, um like a fence pole maybe for like a metal fence. Something. Mm-hmm. It's gonna hurt when you get some leverage and swing into it. Yeah. So okay. So then he was chased down Hubbard Street by a growing number of residents. So he's still running after this. Yeah. Oh. And when he was caught, they beat him <laughs> after forcing him down and then held him until the police arrived. Okay. One second. One second. Round of applause, people. Round of applause. Right. Let's talk about how badass Hubbard Street peeps are, man. Like <laughs> you took down a fucking serial killer, guys. That's I mean, you. All you had to be you know, like just told is like, yeah, this is the guy. Get him, and they're all like, yeah, let's get him. Yeah, like they recognized him and were like, oh fuck you, dude, right? And stuff like you guys did it. You did the damn thing. Exactly. So. <laughs> Shortly after being apprehended, he said to the police, it's me, solidifying to them that they had the right guy. Yeah, beyond the shadow of a doubt kind of thing. Yeah. So one of the things that they did was that they brought in a few of the child abduction and rape victims. Yeah. And had them do a lineup. Right. Yeah. Now, that sounds harsh, and it is kind of harsh, but they needed to know they had the right guy, right, for those cases as well. And one of the victims that they brought in was a six-year-old girl named um, Anastasia Aronis. Uh, I want to say just like maybe the H is silent. Maybe it's uh, Aronis. Maybe. So it's H-R-O-N-A-S. Yeah. Maybe just Aronis. Yeah. So, of course, he can't, like nobody can, they can't see her, the guys that are in the lineup, right? So they have all the guys say things. That were attributed to the Night Stalker. Right. Yeah. And after going through the lineup and everything. She just. She asked. She's like. Do I write to. The number. Or TWO. Because that's that guy. Like. Badass. Badass man. Yeah. Good. Like it's. That's incredible. Because I mean. I couldn't imagine. I couldn't imagine being that age and doing that. Like that's so brave. And stuff. So, <clears throat> in July of 1988, yep. 
he appeared in court for the first time where he pleaded not guilty to all his charges. Mm-hmm. Now, this guy thought he was like some badass. <laughs> a charismatic. Uh, yeah, instead of, a, instead of a jackass, right? And he was not um, a fly cool guy. He literally had like a satanic pentagram on his hand. And when he left court, he was like, hail Satan. Like, yeah, somehow that makes him really cool. Right. Um, so in September of 1989, he was found guilty of all the charges, which were the following. 13 counts of murder, 5 attempted murders, 14 burglaries, and 11 sexual assaults. He received 19 death sentences. Wow. Yeah. I mean, the saying goes, like, double tap to make sure they're dead, but this is 19 tap. Yeah. It's like, okay, well, do you want the chair, the firing squad, the noose, the gas chamber, uh, an injection? I mean, you can have them all at that point. Pretty much. I mean, it's like, you know, whatever he chooses and wants to experience kind of thing. Yeah. So. So, in 2006, two of his appeals were denied, but he had additional appeals that he was waiting on to be heard. Yeah. Right. So it turns out that you actually get quite a few appeals and it can take a long time, especially when you're on death row for your appeals to go through. So like, there's a good chance that he most likely would still be going through appeals at this point. Right. Yeah. Now here's a question for you in regards to the whole appeals thing. I'll try and answer it. Um, yeah, I'm not expecting like this to be like the crystal clear or perfect answer, but it's how many appeals do you get? And it depends on your charges. Like, I'm pretty sure he could appeal every charge. Oh, right? okay. I, I, I'm not a hundred percent sure. And, and especially with American, but my guess would be he can, if he, if he can't, I'm pretty sure he can appeal each, um, count against him. Right. If not, then it's going to be the grouped in count. So he'd at least get four. But there are tons of things that he can do it for. Ineffective counsel, right? Um, is His constitutional rights are being violated. Like all these things. And they have to hit different levels of the government, like of the court, right? Right up to like the Supreme Court. So, so it can take a lot to get all of these done yes so and he but okay hypothetically say he is found guilty and sentenced to death row like the appeals been applied but they still found him guilty or whatever and they give him the death sentence for one crime Mm -hmm. can he still appeal to like the other ones to what other ones like the other murders no it's only what he would be charged with i'm assuming oh okay so just be an all for one kind of thing or maybe Again, I'm not expecting this to be like a solid state or like, you know, this is the, uh, you know. Sorry, I'm not sure I understood your question. So let me try and see if I did. So he received 19 death sentences. Yes. And if he appeals, is it like one, two, three, all the way up to 19? Or is it he has to appeal? I'm sure it's one. One covers all of them, I would assume. Oh, okay. And stuff. And the thing is, like, I've never really heard of cases where someone got like 19 uh death sentences so that's kind of crazy but he did a lot of he did a lot of bad things yeah. so it's not necessarily wrong but i mean let's be honest you can only kill someone once right so once they we were just making sure that you know it's like there's no getting out of this it's like man you did all these horrible things you get in the death sentence no matter what yeah there's no redeeming you yeah but so anyway um y- it seems frustrating in a case like this where you're like, we know he did it, that the appeals can take so long. But on the flip side, you are condemning someone to death. And there have been many people who have been put to death that were later exonerated for their crimes, mm. for, for the crimes they were behind bars for, right? And stuff. So I think there's something to be said about the appeals taking forever, right? Yeah. But... In 1996, okay, let's talk about this real quick before I get into that. Um, He had fans. Yeah, crazy enough. Yeah, and like lots of fans. And it was ridiculous. Like, I've never understood that. I didn't understand, 
like the Ted Bundy fans. I don't understand the serial killer fans in general. Um, doesn't make sense to me, so I don't really get it. It, it. Would the word groupies be applicable here, or no? Is it like I don't a whole know. different ballpark for? I don't know. I don't know what the definition of a groupie is, but yeah, they were fans of his anyway, sending him letters and whatnot. And some very explicit pictures. Yeah, yeah, they showed. I mean, blocked out, but they did show some of the pictures on that and Netflix documentary, and there were some very provocative pictures yeah, and stuff. But in 1996, a lady named Doreen, and I didn't include her last name because I don't know if she changed her name and whatnot, but like just for her privacy. Yeah. She married Richard at San, uh, San Quentin Prison in California, but she divorced him in 2009. I know I said that funny. Yeah, I was thinking, it's like, um, either I'm tired, you're tired, or something's up. It's like, okay, 2009, yeah. Yeah. Um, when the April 10th, 1984 rape and murder of nine-year-old May Luang uh, was connected to him by DNA. Richard lured May into a basement of an apartment building in the Tenderloin District of San Francisco, away from her eight-year-old brother. There, he beat, strangled, raped, and used a switchblade to stab her to death. He then hung her partially nude body from a pipe by her blouse. Jeez. So this was the thing. This was the thing that did it for Doreen. She was like, oh, you killed a child. Nope. I'm out. Wait, but all the other murders are okay? I don't know. I don't know what the thinking was because, again, I don't know. And I don't know, you know, what Doreen's thinking was. But what I'm saying is this seems to be the thing that was you know the too much <clears throat> so i mean i've heard of girls say that they like a bad boy but this isn't a bad boy this is just an outright piece of absolute rancid garbage yeah so okay so ramirez died on june 7th 2013 mm. due to complications secondary to b cell lymphoma so i looked up b cell lymphoma okay I didn't go into a lot of detail, but it's essentially blood cancer. Oh, okay. So his body was breaking down on the inside. Yes. He also had issues due to chronic hepatitis C infections, which I also looked up. And that can cause liver disease and even cirrhosis. Right. And then he also had issues due to chronic substance abuse. So his body was just like fucked. Yeah. And I hope he felt pain every fucking day. Oh, you know, it's like when you talk about this. Okay, so essentially blood cancer. So it's like blood cells are dying in his veins and everything. Like they're not providing him with oxygen or probably doing their job very well. Which Uh, means then he was more prone to his chronic hepatitis C infections. Yeah. So, and then he got... uh, And then he just had issues like... Cirrhosis, I think is how you say that? I don't know if he had cirrhosis, but it could lead to cirrhosis. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, I'm, you know, I'm probably willing to just make a hypothetical and probably had cirrhosis because, I mean, all the other things combined, blood cancer, hepatitis C, or chronic hepatitis C, yeah, and everything else is like, okay, and then... Just damage from chronic son- uh, substance abuse. Right? Yeah, and, like, we're not talking, like, we're, we're talking, like, probably who knows what he did. Well, we know for sure he did cocaine. So. Yeah, so... Right. Um... And again, I don't know if he had psoriasis, but he may have. Because I heard, and I don't remember where I heard it. So this is just like a little hearsay fun fact, I guess. um, That he was a greenish color when he died. Hmm. And that would most likely be caused uh, by the jaundice he would have from having like liver damage, right? Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. And that put an end to that piece of shit. Yeah, may he burn in hell. <laughs> yeah. So, anyways, that whole, I mean, just from the description of everything going on, and like if he had greenish skin, even if it was just like a tinge of green or just looked on sickly a little or whatever, mm-hmm. I can imagine everything was hurting all over. So, I certainly hope so. You and me both. <laughs> so, so any questions? Any? No, that covered it pretty darn well i mean the only thing i really want to say is that i hope uh gil carrillo carrillo thank you i keep thinking car but i'm like is that correct like Mm -hmm. k yeah gil carrillo and frank 
Salerno. Salerno. I really hope that they got like badges of honor, some kind of like recognition and promotion for that kind of thing. Because this was a seriously messed up case, and I can mm -hmm. only imagine how stressful this was for them and their family. Well, they talked about it in the documentary a bit. Yeah. Uh, Frank didn't talk about it so much, but Gil did. And there was a point where his wife and children actually left because one of the attacks that happened was very close. It was a six-minute drive, I think, he said, away from their house. Oh, I thought it was even closer than that. Maybe it was. Oh, no, no, I... Or no, I'm thinking of something else completely different on the documentary. I could have sworn that there was some police uh, person that was saying that their neighbor, like right across the road from them, was uh, one of Ramirez's victims. Yep, yeah. she was. Um, that was the forensic specialist, one of the forensic specialists, I believe. Yeah. And stuff, but no. So when this crime happened about six minutes away from um, the Carrillo house. Yeah. Uh, Gil's wife was like, we're leaving. Like, we'll come back when you've caught him. But we're leaving because this is dangerous. Right? Yeah, it's like the whole, the kids can pick up everything a little bit later or whatever. Yeah. Like, just get out of Dodge. And or, uh, get out of LA in this case. Yeah. And he talked about having issues sleeping. He talked about hearing things. Right? And yeah. stuff like at night when he was trying to fall asleep and stuff. Right? Yeah. So it definitely took his toll. Like he, I mean, Gil talked about how he wasn't sleeping very well, you know, and stuff. And part of it was just investigating. Like he came home and was going to have a nap and his wife said she wasn't going to, I think she said she wasn't going to wake him up or something. And so he called the office to get them to give him a wake up call. And he was just, I think, taking his shoes off or something. And he got a page to come out to a scene, right? Yeah. It's like he barely gets his shoes off and then out the door you go. Yeah. So so that's pretty crazy, but it definitely took a toll on them, but it was really happy to hear at the end of the documentary that Gil's family came back and he got to see them and everybody was super proud of him, you know. So. Oh, absolutely. I couldn't imagine any family member not proud of him because like it talk goes a little bit into the history of um Gil Carrillo uh talking about his upstarting in the force and everything how yeah. he wanted to be a detective and when you hear about all the stuff that he went through and all the hardships and everything like you know definitely an upstanding guy who knew what he wanted and he was not going to be deterred mm -hmm. by anything or anyone until he got the job as a lead detective and everything so yeah. really incredible guy that yeah it's like uh, i was saying any family member of his would has every right to be proud of him because he's just an incredible badass awesome guy yeah oh i wanted to show you really quick okay i know that our esteemed audience can't see it but this one well the site will be in the show notes. yeah and stuff this one site has some pictures yeah so there's him with his satanic yeah so pentagram on his hand. hand right um i don't know here he is just in jail right it's a cop or a bailiff or something. Yeah. Right. Uh, skyline of California, I think. Uh, I'm not sure what that is. Um, yeah, it doesn't say what it is. I can't read the writing on that. Von, uh, a bakery? Um, some bakery, anyway. Yeah, it's some bakery. Probably. Of course, I could read the bakery on it. <laughs> um. Then there's, yeah, some. Yeah, so there's this one thing where it's like you were looking at pictures of uh, Richard Ramirez. Yeah. Um, the whole <clears throat> context of this is supposed to be, I, I think one thing to really say about this is that there wasn't an abundance of pictures or documentaries or like, I'm not documentaries, uh, documentation of mm. Richard Ramirez. Like, sure, there's a lot of pictures and notes and everything of the crime scenes but mm -hmm. really there's not an incredibly large or abundant amount of footage or pictures of ramirez before after or during his jail time kind of thing mm -hmm. so 
Well, I mean, clearly not after because he got the death sentence. But yeah, showing some pictures of things like there's a thing of his shoe print in mm -hmm. the concrete. I think that was. Yep. One was the concrete. One was the dirt. Yep. Then. Yeah, just a lot of. Yeah, a lot of interesting scenes of where things happened in and around the area. There's the one with the dentist appointment. Yeah, the dentist's office. Yeah. There's a picture of that. Um, the one I was really interested in showing you is right down at the bottom. Okay. Oh, just... look. There's James. Yeah. Good job, James, with your great memory. Um, sorry, I wanted your reaction on the show. I guess I should have gotten to it sooner. Um, almost there. <laughs> almost. There we go. There's his wedding photo. It just looks like it's just disgusting. Because, I mean, it's trying to, like, show a mountain background with some trees in it or whatever. Like, it's a decent background setting. But just looking into his eyes in this picture, it's just, like, there's no joy. There's no anger. There's no nothing. Like, he's just, just void. Yeah, it's just like he's staring right ahead like yeah. deer in the headlights. And then he's got his hand on the shoulder of his bride. Wife, yeah, bride. And pulling her in close. And she doesn't, like, she looks like she's, like, only surface level happy at most. It's more of like a, I'm going to get my 15 minutes of fame or something like that. Not actually like. I mean, we can't really, we can't say why Doreen married him, right? We don't no, know. But, but I'm just saying this is what it looks like from like, yeah. when you look at her smile, it does not reach her eyes. Her eyes and her lips are saying two different things. Her eyes are saying, this is happening. And her smile is saying, mm -hmm. oh, yay, I'm kind of happy. Yeah, it's a little bit, it's a interesting picture. So. I just wanted you to see it because I thought it was interesting to see, right? So. Oh, for sure. And, like, that's the thing is that, you know, a picture is worth a thousand words. Yeah. You can look at that picture and all these other pictures to and pick out every little detail and stuff like that to your heart's content. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, Ramirez was just absolute human garbage. And I hope his victims are resting in peace and the ones that are still alive. I hope they've gotten the medical and emotional treatment and support that they need to get yeah. over that. Cause it, it's not something that you go through without coming out unscathed. Cause mm -hmm. like you, you were saying the girl at the very beginning, she put her keys in front of her face and that bullet ricocheted off. Maria, that, would, yeah. that would scare the daylights out of everyone. Yeah, definitely. And you know, the guy that got shot in the head, it's like yeah, all kinds of awful things. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Okay, okay. Oh. <laughs> go so, ahead. Uh, okay, so uh, I think that's pretty much going to cover up every, uh, cover everything on the cases and everything. Like we talked about uh, the victims, the sentences that he got for all of the crimes and the murders and everything. My big question for you is, do you ever see there being somebody that could top Ramirez? Mm-hmm. Because like like we were saying that he's a he was such a outside the box like complete anomaly for the case of like what most serial killers are. Mm -hmm. Do you see that there might be somebody that would ever top him? Oh yeah, there has been. Oh, there has been. Mm -hmm. Oh, here I thought this was like you know such a landmark case in regards to that. No. Okay. Well, I think it makes. I think it's harder now like a days for a serial killer to get away with it because of all the um technology um increases that have happened mm -hmm. yeah. such things like camera surveillance and stuff like that dna yeah that too uh it, it's one of those things where it would definitely be they wouldn't go on such a spree i guess would be the or massacre yeah as ramirez was able to pull off back in the 80s but, yeah, I feel like definitely there would be something would be left behind, right? Oh, for sure. And stuff. So, yeah. Okay. So, now that we're done with Richard Ramirez, I want to talk about something <coughs> that I plan to do a case on. Yeah. 
and stuff. And it's the Oklahoma Girl Scout murders. Uh, yeah. Um, this one gets pretty bad. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Can you type for me? Yeah. Oh. Since you're closer to the keyboard. Homer. There we go. Yeah. So the Oklahoma Girl Scout murders, and like I said, I want to do a case on it, so I'm not going to go hugely into it at the moment. But it was a 1977 case, happened June 13th in Mays County, Oklahoma, at Camp Scott, where three young girls, um, not sure how to really describe this. Lori Lee Farmer, age eight. Okay. Michelle Heather Gousset, I believe is how you say her name, age nine, and Doris Denise Milner, age 10 were all murdered their first night at camp. Yeah. Um, it's one thing when it's like uh, a camp murder uh, horror movie genre thing. Yeah. That it's exciting. But when you hear about something like this, and especially to girls that were in like, you know, some of the most innocent phases of their lives, mm -hmm. that it's just really appalling. Yeah. So, here's the thing. This was an unsolved case. Right. Quote, unquote, unsolved case. Until just recently when they said that they, without a doubt, from DNA that was at there. Right. Yeah. At there. Wish I knew how to speak English. Um. <laughs> Sorry, everybody. Yeah, uh, we're both just a little tired, so yeah. Um, they okay. So what happened was DNA was found at the scene. Yeah, but it's seventy-seven, right? You can't see it, right? Like you can't the, test it back then. Yeah, the medical technology to examine it was not yeah. up to par. Then it was tested in eighty-nine. Yep, and it was it showed three or five probes that matched the suspect. Right. Yeah. So it it was. And was the circumstance? Not circumstance. What's the word? Uh, inconclusive. Well, that's just that's all the technology allowed at the time. Like yeah. it was 1989, right? And stuff. Um, in 2008, they conducted new DNA testing, and it was inconclusive because the samples were too dear, dear, deteriorated. Thank you. To obtain. <laughs> DNA. Right. I know what you're trying to say. I got so you. So in 2017, $30,000 in donations were raised by the new sheriff of, he may not have been new then, but it, like, obviously it's not the same sheriff that was there in 77. And he had DNA testing done, the latest advances in testing, right? Yeah. Um, Basically, Sheriff Mike Reed said, unless something new comes up, something brought to light we're not aware of, I am convinced where I'm sitting of this guy's guilt and involvement in the case due to the DNA testing that was done. And he also said that they had known about the results since 2019. They didn't release it publicly right until the, they were asked to do so by the victim's families, essentially. Right? Yeah. So I wanted to talk about this kind of quickly because when, like when we were talking about Richard Ramirez, I said, I don't think someone could get away with things the way that you could before because of all the technologies. And this is proof of it. Like this was a crime from 1977. That's how many years ago? Well, when was this solved? Or when was this? 2019, technically. Okay, so they they solved the case in 2019, or they uh, yeah. proved beyond the shadow of a doubt that it was the guy, right? Yeah. So that's at least 20, or no, 40, 42 years. Yeah. So that's a long, cold case. Yeah, definitely. And they were able to solve it, right? 
and that's kind of stuff's happening all the time with DNA and different things, right? And stuff. Um, they were able to, like the Golden State Killer is a good example, where they used like um, a genealogy based site. Now, I can't remember the name of the site, but it's not like 21 in... 21 in me? Yeah, or like uh, Ancestry or whatever. Yeah. This one is one that you specifically sign up for to allow like your DNA. Yeah, the DNA sequencing. So they can collect the DNA sequencing from those companies if you allow permission. And then it goes into this, it's like geo... Geo DNA or something. That's not the name of it, but it's close. Um, It's the name of the company. And they when you say yes to this, it allows them to take it and put it in there for police databases or for police to be able to use. Mm-hmm. And that's how they call the golden state killer. Really? Yeah. They ran his DNA that was left at a scene through there, found matches yeah. to the DNA. Right. That mm-hmm. were, were familial. Yeah. And then were able to narrow down. Like to, the possible suspect to catch of- him. Which, I mean, that that is great news because you got to think, how many times has a case gone unsolved because, like, the Oklahoma Girl Scouts uh, murders, murders yeah. and the amount of, like, if Richard Ramirez, you know, just hadn't been caught kind of thing, like, let's just say after it was like, oh, yada, yada, and it was like, he just booked it out of town or whatever yeah. and just disappeared, like, the whole, yeah, DNA sequencing uh, and testing for on crime scenes mm-hmm. would if if it wasn't for these advancements it would make it next to impossible to prove that somebody was there exactly now that doesn't prove like this is where it gets to the whole hypothetical but it's like it doesn't prove what they were doing but it's like if you're the only one's dna that's there especially with this girl scouts murder mm-hmm. that happened it's like why is your dna your specific dna sequence showing up on this test saying you were there the night they were murdered I mean, you'd have to be, I'm just saying, it's like, you'd have to be one hell of a good defense attorney to, you know, make people think that this wasn't you, mm-hmm. or the jury would have to be pretty negligent, I think, on uh, the details and stuff to mm-hmm. not be like, oh, well, they removed all shadow of doubt. Mm-hmm. I think if that's a fair way to put it. Mm-hmm. Because once you remove any, like, any possible thread for doubt, it's like, well, yeah, it's, there's so much evidence pointing to this one person doing the murders of these three little girls. And what's crazy is they had the guy. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's the other thing. They had him. They put him to trial. And he was found not guilty. Yeah, because, of course, this is before, so... They, you know, they were like, maybe there was circumstantial evidence or... Yeah, like, back stuff. then it would have been circumstantial evidence, right? Yeah, because they're like, well, it kind of matches you, but it also matches, like, 10,000 other guys in the, mm-hmm. you know, in the county alone yeah. kind of thing. It's like, well, yeah, we have male DNA. Well, yeah, you know, they were brutally uh, raped and murdered kind of thing or mm-hmm. something. Like, I'm not sure if all of them were, but it's like... No. That, well, uh, the ones that were, you know, so it's like, okay, clearly, they they're, at least they know they're looking for someone that would do these horrible things like okay well that doesn't really that takes out half the population but you still got the other half to kind of cycle through and figure out who Mm -hmm. so exactly it it gets very convoluted very fast it does but i want to do a deep dive on this case and if you guys want to hear a couple of really good deep dives on it you could check out ash and elena did it on morbid yeah and uh, mike and gibby did it on True crime all the time, unsolved. Yeah, because one big thing is that we're kind of just doing this with the access to whatever internet that, like the websites that we have. Uh, we try to, you know, you know, cast a wide enough net to make sure that, like you said, you searched it up on a lot of things on Richard Ramirez to make sure mm-hmm. your information was accurate. Yeah. Also, the uh, a lot of these cases in regards to these things. We're kind of doing this a little bit for fun where those people, they got, they do it uh, a lot more seriously, I think, is a prop. Well, I mean, we're serious about it. Yeah, we're serious about it. And I guess that's the bad word to use. I'm... And stuff. Yeah, like we we do the best we can, right? I'm not the best, like 100% out there researcher. My research has gotten better since we've started, for sure. Oh, for sure. And stuff, but 
you know, um, I'm not, I don't know all the websites to go look at and I would love to cover some cases in Canada. The problem is, is in Canada. <laughs> the laws here are a little different on the Freedom of Information Act, I think. Yeah, like there are some things that I'm sure I could find online and read books about and stuff, but there are some cases that you can't, right? Like, and it's there's not a lot out there about them and trying to get the information is like pulling teeth, right? Yeah. And stuff. Um, I believe the phrase is pulling chicken teeth. Okay. Chicken don't, chickens don't have teeth. So ah. it's like, you know, trying to pull a tooth out of a beak. Yeah. It's like, you can't because, you know, it's like you just can't get anything. Anyways, it's an old saying. It's like the whole, yeah, if you believe that one, I got a bridge to sell you. Mm. Or the whole, I got, I got uh, oceanfront property in Arizona you should buy. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, so I definitely recommend listening to those because they were some really good um, informative takes on the case. For sure. So, all right. Anything else you want to add there, Owen? Well, as much as it kind of like disturbs me and irks me to go through these uh, true crime cases and everything, if, uh, yeah, our fans want to hear more about these kinds of things, we'll definitely do a dive into them. Because, like, I got to say, this episode of the research you've done and the notes that you put down and everything we went through, has been spot on hmm. tremendous Thanks. like i don't know how many hours of work you put into that but that was really good it was really neat uh it did a deep enough dive i think for anyone who doesn't know about richard Ramirez, Ramirez, yeah, rancid uh, ramirez <laughs> there, that one rolls off the tongue a little easier my body just rejects it it's like no you would not say his name <laughs> but uh yeah the whole everything was like it was a good first look it didn't overly complicate things and make it kind of muddy and yada yada mm-hmm. because you know there's a lot of information out there mm-hmm. like, there's been how many documentaries and all the interviews and yada yada mm-hmm. so take it for what you will yeah. this yeah this was really well done thank you i appreciate it mm-hmm. um before we go okay i we forgot to drop it on yesterday's episode so we might as well drop it on today's okay you're streaming now yeah that's uh been a little fun pastime thing to do uh whenever you're doing your bd art and uh all kinds of other <laughs> things uh yeah researching murderers yeah so whenever you're kind of doing that kind of stuff it's like hey i get to play some video games uh if you want to give me a follow on twitch i'm oddball underscore two eight eight seven yeah you got a picture of a wolf with like a tongue sticking out of his mouth yeah because i always pictured myself as kind of like the wolf that like is ready to like you know coordinates and thinks about what he's going to do and then everything and then at the end is like no no just have fun Mm -hmm. so i was like i looked up silly wolf pictures and i just found some generic picture on uh google and as far as i know i don't think that's copywritten or anything it's just a picture of a wolf with a tongue out of its side of its face Mm -hmm. exactly all right well thank you everybody so much for joining us um just remember no matter what your thing is or what you're into at the end of the day we're all just a little nerdy